of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to episode 61 of You Don't Have to Yell. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And anyone who's listened to more than 10 minutes of this show knows the purpose of this podcast is to help bring an end to the two-party duopoly in the United States. And our next guest has literally written the book on the subject. Lee Drupman is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation a regular contributor to 538, The Atlantic, and The New York Times, and one of the hosts of Politics in Question, a podcast that digs into some of the structural issues facing America's political institutions and what can be done to reform them. Basically, he's one of those guys you run into at your high school reunion, spend five minutes catching up with, and then spend the rest of the evening in an introspective death spiral over how you've wasted your life. Now, I invited Lee on to discuss his new book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America, which outlines the history of America's devolvement into its current state of partisan trench warfare, the consequences of it, and offers some historical lessons on how we can find our way out. Now, I connected with Lee a few weeks back to talk about his book, and like many guests, present him with some unsubstantiated theories on American politics, he quickly reins in by actually knowing what he's talking about. Funny what happens when you go to school and pay attention. Listen on, people. I will be back at the end with final thoughts. Okay, so uh, first question, Lee, one you probably prepared your whole life for. Uh, could you tell the audience your name and what you do? Oh, my name. Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, <laughs> Lee Drutman. I am a senior fellow at New America. And I got you right from the beginning. I'm sorry, Lee. <laughs> I don't like to. Uh, I don't. I don't like to to engage in gotcha journalism, but I uh, just couldn't resist. Today, I I invited you here to uh, talk about your new book, Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop, which you can buy today, uh, which makes a case for multipartisan democracy. One of the things I found interesting was what prompted you to to write it, because I, I I told you, you know, my my focus originally when I got into this podcast was really focusing on campaign finance reform, and that's when I found that uh, our current system of uh, elections was really, or our current system of electing officials to office was really the problem. And you sort of found it the same way because when you started looking into multi party democracy, you were actually trying to solve the issue of lobbying, correct? Yeah. So my previous book, uh, which is called The Business of America, is lobbying, was uh, an inquiry into why there was so much corporate lobbying in Washington and why corporate lobbyists seem to have so much influence. And after talking to a lot of lobbyists, working in Congress myself, analyzing a lot of data, uh, it, it occurred to me that maybe one of the reasons that corporate lobbyists have so much influence is because that's where all the policy expertise in Washington is. And the reason for that is because Congress had really de-invested in its own staffing and resource capacity. So if members of Congress and their staff didn't know uh, the basics of policy, they had to turn to lobbyists. So 
It seemed like a pretty straightforward solution. You just get Congress to pay for more staff. After all, Congress sets its own budgets. And uh, one of the things, as I tried to advocate for this, that you know, came came straight at me was that uh, Congress didn't want to do that because it was such a centralized institution that the the party leaders uh, don't want committees and individual members having too many resources, which was really a, a both a consequence and a, and a cause of this increasing polarization. Uh, and also, even if there were more experts and policy staff in Congress, it's not clear that Congress would get anything done because of this polarization. Uh, so uh, it's kind of set about thinking, well, how could we break this hyperpartisanship? Uh, which seems to be getting worse. And certainly with the election of Donald Trump, I think it became clear that we have a, a serious problem. And you know, as I started doing my research, I read a lot of history and tried to think about how did we get to this moment. And I also looked beyond our shores and said, well, uh, how do other democracies uh, do Elections and why are other democracies managing uh, this sort of populist threat a little bit better? And it occurred to me that maybe it had something to do with the way that we hold our elections. And you know, many months later, I turned over this book manuscript to my publisher, and and there you have it. In the beginning of the book, you lay your partisan cards down on the table, which. I thought was cool because I think one of the things that you can't help but do in today's environment is read something and automatically try to infer bias. So if you'd indulge me, could we lay our partisan cards out on the table for the audience? Sure. So, so I, I acknowledge uh, that, that I am a Democrat Mm-hmm. There, I've said it. I've, <laughs> I've always voted for for Democrats. I yeah. have worked for a Democrat in in Congress, uh, and you know, I'm, I I have my concerns and qualms about Democratic Party, but you know, overall, I can't really envision myself ever voting for a Republican. So I'm a Democratic partisan. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I, I think that this current system is destroying our democracy. And although there's a, an emotional part of me that wants Democrats to just crush Republicans and, and run the country, I, I realize how destructive that impulse is. And uh, so that's me. How yeah. about you, Dan? So I will, I will uh, make my own confessions as well. Uh, I was a Republican for a very long period of time. So I was a, uh, I was one of the, I was a Northeast Republican, so I don't know if that officially counts. Uh, but so my you're first, basically a Democrat now. Yeah, more or less. Like now I am. <laughs> you cited a study in 2018, and at the time, 700 democracy experts gave America a one in six chance of having a democratic crisis in the next four years. And I'm going to ask you this with the full knowledge that uh, as of today, uh, good portions of the West Coast are on fire. People there haven't seen the sun in a week. We're in the midst of a global pandemic and economic slowdown. 
have our odds of having a democratic crisis gone up since 2018, do you feel? Uh, yes, I, I would say they have gone up. And yeah. not only that, but we have a president who is claiming that mail ballots, which are going to uh, decide this election, are uh, a source of fraud and seems to be trying to delegitimize anything that would uh, cost him his his victory. Uh, we have the uh, Electoral College, which uh, if Trump wins, it will be because of the Electoral College and not the popular vote, which will render him illegitimate to, to, mm-hmm. to Democrats. So I, I think we're getting closer and closer to that moment in which we have an election that is not seen as legitimate and not accepted by, you know, half of the voters and you know that is uh, that is a moment of of true crisis yeah uh, in addition to all of the the you know the issues that are swirling around and making the the stakes seem higher and higher I, i'm deeply worried yeah and so how did we get here the sort of conventional uh, starting point is going to be at mid-century and that's where where i start uh, the the history section of my book. Uh, and, you know, if you got back in your time machine, assuming that you could find one and went back to 1950 as America, you'd find two political parties that you know, were more or less the same uh, at a national level. And uh, they were really just coalitions of state and local parties and uh, there was not a ton of coherence to the to the party agendas and to the parties uh, as constituted in, in Congress. And this was a, a source of concern, actually, to a, to a lot of political scientists who felt like the parties didn't stand for anything and they didn't have clear programs and voters couldn't make clear choices. Uh, and what they wanted was more uh, distinct and and responsible parties that really stood for something and gave voters clear and meaningful choices. Uh, now, uh, things began to change in the 1960s. Uh, civil rights is generally considered the kind of pivotal moment in the modern American political development because what it did was it really set in motion a process whereby the parties began to sort uh, on genuine ideological commitments, and the Republican Party began to become more and more conservative. The Democratic Party began to become more and more liberal. And what you had for a period of time in the mid-60s through probably even the early 90s was you had kind of a four-party system with liberal Republicans, of which I guess you would have identified yourself with, from the, from mostly from the Northeast, but from the the West Coast, sort of, uh, you know, culturally liberal, liberal, fiscally moderate, and conservative Democrats, mostly from the South and rural areas, kind of culturally conservative, but economically populist, to some extent. And uh, the this four party system actually worked pretty well with our political institutions, because it uh, fostered these fluid coalitions that, you know, uh, allowed uh, different issues to uh, get different types of majorities and a system in which didn't feel that 
each election was super high stakes. Voters voted for candidates more than parties uh, to some extent. And that, that kind of loose jointedness, you know, it, it, it worked with our political system. Uh, it was it certainly had its problems and voters didn't often know what the parties stood for. And there was a sense that the candidates were not super uh, you know, responsible to their to their parties and more focused on local parochial issues. But, you know, we passed a lot of landmark legislation at the time uh, and, you know, we got some stuff, some important stuff done uh, as a country. And, and we, you know, thrived, I would say. Uh, now, that, that started to really collapse in the 90s as elections became more and more nationalized. And the, the process of sorting that the uh, civil rights revolution had set in motion began to, to become clear. And it began to become harder and harder to be a conservative Democrat and harder and harder to be a liberal Republican. And elections became more and more nationalized. Voters were voting for the parties, not the candidates. Uh, and the stakes of politics became more and more about these uh, zero-sum, uh, intensely emotional culture war issues. And the Democratic Party became more and more the party of, of cities, and the Republican Party became more and more the party of, uh, of rural America, traditional values against the cosmopolitan values. And this made American politics really a, a two-party system for the first time. I would say that it wasn't really until 2010 that American politics actually became a two-party system with two distinct parties. Uh, and the parties uh, really came to see the other party as the enemy. And, you know, mm -hmm. 70% of voters say that the other party represents a threat to to America, I mean that that is a that's a really dangerous condition because it means that you know, there's nothing that your party could do that would uh, cause you to to abandon it, and that includes shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue or or the political equivalent of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the statistic that I heard, and correct me if I'm getting this wrong here. But it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of partisans. So 40% of registered uh, members of either major party are actually, or their party affiliation is more out of an antipathy towards the opposition than a support of the party they're voting for. I, I haven't seen that exact statistic. Uh, you know, I think it it's... It's hard to, I think that that's a thing that's kind of hard to measure. I think it's, I mean, what we do know is that the way that uh, American voters feel about the opposing party has uh, on, on feeling thermometers, which is sort of a classic uh, way political scientists measure it, has gone you know from about in the 40s in 1980, which is you know somewhere between zero and 100 to, to in the low 20s now. And the Americans really hate the candidates of the other party. Now, a lot of Americans also feel very strongly about their own party. Uh, so it, sometimes it's hard to tell where antipathy to the other party uh, ends and where support for your own party begins because these two uh, identities are, are kind of linked. But it's true that there are a lot of 
lot of Americans who don't feel super enthusiastic about either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, and but they really feel like like the other party would be a tremendous threat. So I think it's it's important to distinguish two two things simultaneously that can be true, which is one that there are a lot of people who feel very strongly towards their own party and hate the other party, and there are two there are a lot of people who are sort of ambivalent to the party that they generally vote for, but just really feel like they hate the other party. I picked up, too, you'd mentioned how politics became nationalized around the civil rights era. And of course, that was a time when uh, there were many Southern Democrats disenchanted with their own party's uh, embracing of, of the civil rights movement. Uh, and and the Nixon campaign made a very uh, overt uh, gesture towards them to pull them on board to uh, the Republican Party. And that's really where this law and order slogan, uh, at least, you know, post-World War II originated. The interesting thing, though, that, that I also, that, that, I've, that I've been following, and this has kind of popped up in, in recent episodes, is that television as a medium has had a lot to do with the creation of uh, what you'd call in your book sort of partisan heroes or villains in this political theater. Um, and I could think of two people who, who used modern media artfully. Uh, Newt Gingrich was one. And uh, Newt Gingrich was very good at leveraging um, different aspects of, of cable news to get his message across. I think he was cited as giving a speech uh, on the floor of the house. I think it was at 1 a.m. because he knew the cameras for C-SPAN would be on. And so he'd effectively be able to broadcast this speech out without any interference. And of course, the second one is Donald Trump, you know, who is probably better at manipulating the 24-hour news cycle than anyone. Do you have a sense as to how much national television and maybe the decline of local journalism might be accelerating this effect of hyperpartisanship? So... I will confess that I tend to be a little skeptical of explanations that put the media at the center of hyperpartisanship in America. Uh, and mostly that's because uh, there's television in, in a wide variety of democracies and there's uh, social media in a wide variety of democracies. And, and so it's not, it's not something unique to America that more and more politics has been televised. And yet the problem of hyperpartisanship is somewhat unique to America. That said, you know, I think that there are certainly ways in which the media environment and particularly the uh, expansion of, of cable news seems to have accelerated some underlying trends. And there's a, 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 cottage industry of academic research that shows that Fox News seemed to have had a distinctly polarizing effect on Republicans. So I think there's certainly some effect from, from television, but, you know, I, I, I think that, that it's, you know, television and the news is picking up on underlying uh, trends and structural uh, issues in American politics and amplifying them. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I don't think I don't think a, a a news network, a pundit, or a politician can 
manufacture an emotion that isn't there. Uh, I think what they can do is they can direct it, you know? And so uh, in a lot of cases, and I think most of us, I think most people in discussing the 2016 election agree, the grievances are real. You know, what prompted somebody to vote the way they did, it, that that's not fabricated. It's just directed in the in the wrong way, I think a lot of us would argue. Um, total aside, but, you know, one of the things that I saw, and again, this is me growing up. My dad came from a, you know, Irish Catholic working class family. They were all traditional Democrats. Um, he flipped and uh, and became a very diehard Republican. And so I was actually brought up with an intense suspicion of the media um, and and brought up with this idea that you were never going to hear the truth on things to an extent. I, I'm, I'm kind of embellishing a bit here. Um, and, and I really think like in a lot of ways, uh, conservative media specifically has preyed on that. Um, and again, that's that's not to say the media created it or or. Or, or didn't create it, but it, it's just to say that I saw I saw the the beginnings of a lot of this distrust, um, and 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 a lot of this uh, you know uh, the sort of and, and a lot of the the foundations of the post truth era sort of being built. Oh yeah, and I mean you can see the origins of that in in 1950s and 1960s conservative radio programming too. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure this is a this is a new phenomenon, and you know you, you could even go back to the American Revolution, and you know in the summer of 1776, the the Patriot Papers didn't report on how poorly George Washington was was faring in New York, and had they done that, you know maybe uh, you know the the, uh, the the Continental Congress in Philadelphia would have thrown in the towel. Uh, so yeah, there's a long history of 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 news that is partisan or you know filtered. Yeah, in a sense that things are not necessarily true. So I, you know, I that's why I you know when I look for explanations, I try to find things that that have developed in in recent years that that are somewhat new, rather than things that have been sort of consistent over time or across countries. But what's unique to America? and what is unique in particular in America in this contemporary moment. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment with Lee Drubman. Well, hello there. I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I hope it's providing some sense of urgency as to why electoral reform is so important. Now, in the back half of this episode, Lee's going to provide some examples from history that tell us how large-scale reform like proportional representation can happen. And without giving away anything, a necessary ingredient is a large number of people making themselves heard. Now, the goal of YDHTY is to serve as a platform for everyone looking to make America a truly representative democracy and to achieve its mission I need your help. If this episode resonates with you and you know people it would speak to as well, share YDHTY with them right now by clicking on the three little dots right next to the episode title in your device. It is a small action that can help this movement continue to gain momentum. As always, thank you for listening. Thanks for your support. And back to the show. 
you mentioned voters aren't happy with the way things are. What about elected officials? So I think a lot of elected officials are not happy with the way things are either. Mm -hmm. If you sat down with any member of Congress and you said, how's our politics working? You think it's working well? Uh, they would almost certainly say, no, it's, it's incredibly dysfunctional. All we do is, is bash each other, uh, and we never seem to get anything done, and it's really frustrating. You'd think that, that they might want to do something differently, but one of the challenges is that it, it's really hard for them to think about any other way because this is the entire political world that they have, have risen in. And, you know, there's a lot of pressures to to just get on the partisan team and buy into the idea that if only our side takes total power, uh, then everything will be good for America. And if the other side takes total power, then everything will be terrible for America. Uh, if you watch the Democratic Convention, America will no longer be a democracy uh, which, you know, again, as a Democrat, I have some sympathy for that view. If you watch the Republican con convention, Mike Pence tells you that the question is not whether a Democrat or a Republican will win. The question is whether America will remain America. That is a very high stakes election. Uh, and under those conditions and under that rhetoric, uh, you know, it's it's really hard to see any member of Congress, any elected official saying, hold on, you know, we have to put aside this short term nature of our politics to win the next election to think more broadly, even if it means that our side might not come out on top. Uh, because that's just not how the incentive structure is oriented in our politics and not how the mindset of the people who are running the conventions and running the parties is operating. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say the incentive structure in parties right now is uh, to remain as partisan as possible. The incentive structure is not to pursue compromise. The The incentive structure is not to even find where your voters middle ground are, or is, I should say, uh, because ultimately, of course, the threat, if you're on either side of the aisle, is that if you don't fall in line enough, you're going to be primary, correct? Right. Well, that's part of it is you might be primaried if you're not a strong enough partisan. Uh, and part enough part of it is that the the heads of the parties uh, don't want to blur the message. If you're mm -hmm. the Democrats right now, you want to get Trump out of office. And the surest way to get him out of office is to make it harder for Congress to do anything that might be popular and mm -hmm. to legitimate any uh, policies uh, that you know uh, Republicans support by letting some of your members give it the the uh, patina of bipartisanship, mm -hmm. and it was the same incentive that Republicans had. Uh, so uh, the other problem is that although the parties are hyper polarized, uh, the parties are not entirely unified, and so. Part of the goal of party leaders in Congress is to fight on the issues that divide the parties from each other rather than might scramble some of the coalitions. 
mm-hmm. you know, issues that are a little bit more more complicated. And so we wind up only fighting on the issues for the most part that really draw sharp, sharp contrasts with the parties because to draw sharp contrasts uh, mobilizes voters, it, it mobilizes uh, funders. And, you know, there are just not that many voters in the middle uh, to who haven't made up their minds. And even those voters who are sort of in the middle, they're not you know, or we think of in the middle, are they're they're actually kind of all over the place ideologically. They're they're more heterogeneous and just they don't really fit in one party or the other. But it's not because they're centrist; it's because they're idiosyncratic to the 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 bundles that the two parties are are offering right now. There definitely seems to be a skew in partisan sentiment and, and party identification. And I, and generally the thing I've heard from political scientists who I've talked to over and over again is there, you know, there's no such thing as an independent. There's effectively somebody who is a functional partisan, but just chooses not to attach their identity to it. Well, I mean, that's not entirely true. You don't think there are some, there are some genuine independents, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the people who identify as independents are, People who typically vote one party or the other almost entirely, but don't really feel like they attach to that party, um, sort of are registering a a kind of sense of disdain for how our politics works. So uh, that's that's complicated in the sense that people, they're not truly independent, but they're not partisans either. And part of the challenge in our two-party system is that if you want to vote and have your vote count, you really need to pick one of the two major parties, right? Otherwise, you're just wasting your vote in our first-past-the-post winner-take-all system. So it's not surprising that you have a lot of people who are independents but who also vote like partisans because, you know, what else are they going to do? Uh, but by registering as an independent, they're also registering their frustration with our political system. And so we've got a system elected officials aren't all that happy with. Voters aren't all that happy with. Um, the root of it is is really the, the forced choice we have to make in our first past the post voting system. So what do you feel is the ideal system? Well, I think an ideal system is one in which voters have more than two choices. I think it's one in which our politics is not uh, divided into a zero-sum binary. So I think it's a it's a form of modest proportional representation in which you know we have like four to six parties, uh, which is the norm for most advanced democracies. It's not a controversial or radical proposal. In fact, I'd say we probably had a four, maybe even six party democracy. Uh, We just didn't call it that. Uh, And I think the best way to get there is by enacting ranked choice voting with uh, proportional multi-member districts, which is basically what the Irish do and uh, what Australia does for its Senate. Now, our, our complication is it's really hard to get around single single uh, winner elections for the Senate. So I'd 
probably say we just do ranked choice voting for the Senate and then uh, multi-member ranked choice voting districts for the House and ultimately ranked choice voting for the president. But the, the pres- our electoral college system makes that a little complicated, although states could do ranked choice voting at the state level, as Maine will be doing this year. Well, even and even the one thing I looked at is if you look at the states that that enabled Trump's victory in 2016, uh, you know, namely you know, Wisconsin and and Michigan are two that that come to mind. Uh, if you take a look at how the votes broke down between Trump, Clinton, and then uh, Stein and Johnson, um, if you assume that the Green Party vote in a again in a ranked choice system second second choice for the Green Party vote was Clinton. Um, if you assume the libertarians kind of broke evenly between the two, uh, which I kind of based on, again, anecdotally, and maybe you have something to back this up, but anecdotally, from what I know of libertarians, I think it's probably fair to say they'd be split. Um, it would have fundamentally changed the outcome of the election. Yeah, that's true. And and perhaps more fundamentally, I think you would have seen uh, seen some different candidates running mm-hmm. who, you know, I, I wouldn't if you had a ranked choice voting, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Bernie Sanders had run and perhaps mobilized a lot more folks to go out and vote who who might have not otherwise voted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and then said, you know, vote for me and then vote for Hillary second. Uh, you know. Uh, so I, I think it's not only it's not only I mean, the, the problem now is you just have fringe candidates running as third party candidates because, you know, they know that nobody's going to vote for them except for you know a few people because their votes are going to be wasted. But I think the types of candidates running as third and fourth and fifth party candidates would be higher uh, quality because you would see more of those uh, candidates thinking that they have a real opportunity to make a, make an impact in, in the election. A hundred percent. And so I think one thing too, I want to just clarify is, you know, a lot of times when I use the phrase proportional representation in conversation, especially when I'm talking to folks who are on the right, they instantly go to the electoral college. That is where their brain goes right away. So you really, and then I have to go through the whole effort of dewiring them uh, to give them to get them to focus on the house. Do you feel, I guess, when you look at a system that would function best, do you feel like there's room for those disproportional institutions, such as the Senate and the Electoral College, or do you feel like that would kind of dampen the effect that uh, proportional representation might have strictly on the House of Representatives? I mean, I think that these are these are two separate conversations. So the the you know the 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 case for doing proportional representation in uh, the electoral college is that uh, states uh, allocate their electoral votes in proportion to the share of uh, of of their population that votes for one candidate or the other, and that's mm-hmm. a proposal. Uh, that actually passed the Senate in 1950 and then uh, died in the House. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's one way to get around this problem of the Electoral College, uh, you know, helping the, the states that are, or, or, sorry, it's one way to get around the Electoral College leading to a, to a vote 
count that is uh, at odds with the popular vote. Now, uh, the, the Senate is going to be hard to do proportionally because you only have two senators for per state. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's hard to do anything proportionally if you have more than, uh, you know, unless you have m- more than three to really probably five people being elected at a time. Uh, now, you can do ranked choice voting in the Senate. I mean, there are some radical plans to maybe give every state five senators, which I think would would allow you to do some proportional representation. But I mean, the, the Senate is the Senate is going to be a, a complicated one for reformers. The, you know, the real opportunity is in the House, uh, you know, and what you can do there that it actually resembles or actually is proportional representation is instead of having single winner plurality districts, which we have, uh, you combine five districts into one district and then you send five representatives who represent all of that district, uh, and you do it the way the Irish do it through through a, a ranked choice voting election, in which you get the top five winners. Uh, there are some some transfers and in, in, in in order to make sure that it's fair. It's you know it's a the the Irish uh, spend spend days you know watching all the transfers. It's like a national sport there, uh, <laughs> and and they love it. Uh, so. Uh, you know that, and and they just call their system PR uh, because it is a form of proportional representation, uh, and they have multiple parties. They have like three to five, typically about three to five parties uh, represented in their legislature, uh, and you know that, that's a fair system. Uh, it's a fair system because you know it means that you don't have to live in a swing district or you know or a swing state in order for your vote. To matter if it's proportional, uh, it is a fairer system because you, you are more likely to find a, a candidate or a party that you're excited about and feel represented by. Uh, it, it's a fairer system because you don't have to live in a particular district in order to get. Uh, you don't have to align with the person who represents your district in order to have somebody who actually represents you, uh, or you don't have to be aligned with person in that single member district. Like if you're a Republican who you know lives in Boston, say, or you're never mm-hmm. going to get a Democrat, but in a single winner system. But if you have a proportional system where you only need 17 or 20 percent of the vote. Uh, in order to, to go to Congress, you might be able to elect some some Bill Weld uh, Republicans to to Congress. Yeah, that's. I think the 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 biggest shame in our I think our devolution over the last two decades has been sort of the 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 extinction of the moderate Republican and the extinction of the moderate Democrat. And just one example that pops into my head is Susan Collins, who is probably. Uh, I think the last Northeast Republican in office in national office. You you tell me if I'm wrong here. Um, yeah, and she yeah. is. Yeah, and, and yeah. Tragedy of of Susan Collins' 2020 campaign is that if she had run as an independent, uh, she she actually might have been able to take advantage of Maine's ranked choice voting, uh, which they now have. And, uh, you know, run to the center, been the second choice of, you know, enough Republicans 
that she would have she would have done better than the Republican candidate, uh, but she would have gotten some Democratic voters because she's maintaining her independence. Uh, but instead, you know, she just ran as a Republican, which I guess, you know, if you're a lifelong Republican, as she is and you know, identifies as a Republican, uh, you know, that's hard to do. But, you know, I think I think if she, the ranked choice voting in Maine would have allowed her to do that. And you know, I, I don't know why she didn't other than sort of historic loyalty to the Republican Party and maybe an idea that she can be the last, you know, standing Republican to build a new type of Republicanism. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't understand her psychology, but yeah. Yeah. We don't have to, we don't have to dig into that. So, yeah. um, so last question in two parts for you, um, which is when I bring up proportional representation against, again, first thing I have to do is take the, take somebody's focus away from the electoral college. The second thing you get is, or the second response you always get is it's never going to happen. This is just too big of a change. And there were two interesting historical, uh, there were two interesting instances you cited, one from recent history, one from a little further back of, of, uh, fundamental changes, uh, made to, uh, how elections are run to get for, to, to arrive at a more proportional, more directly, uh, representative system. And uh, the one you cited, and I'd love for you to explain, or the two you cited, number one is uh, New Zealand and their transition from our winner-take-all system to a proportional system. And then the second one is uh, the direct election of senators and how that movement started. Could you kind of go into both of those for me? Sure. So uh, New Zealand... Uh, up until uh, the early 1990s, had a first-past-the-post, winner-take-all system of elections. And the New Zealanders were really unhappy with this system starting in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. They felt like the system kept generating the the, the wrong winner, which is that the party that won uh, fewer, uh, fewer votes managed to get the, the majority in the, in their parliament and just just New Zealand politics was was really dysfunctional in the 80s and so there was a, a growing sense that they needed to change their electoral system and you know, folks in New Zealand got behind a form of proportional representation that Germany uses uh, which is to have party lists on top of, of single member districts so it becomes mm-hmm. proportional the party lists become a top off uh, we don't have to go too much into the details other than that it's a, a form of proportional representation that generates multiple parties. And there were two referenda in New Zealand uh, back you know, in 1992 and 1993. Voters were asked twice if they wanted to make this change, and they said they did. And you know, politicians who initially had opposed it came to support it. And by all accounts, New Zealand politics became a lot more functional. Uh, you know, it just became a just became a lot better run country, became more and more inclusive democracy. And you know, most people who have studied it say the, the reform really worked. Now, it, it took a, a, a tremendous amount of public pressure. Uh, it took an understanding that the current system was broken, and it took a few politicians to champion the cause of reform. Uh, but it did happen. Uh, the other uh, case closer to home that you mentioned is the 
direct election of senators. Now, we're, we're used to having direct election of senators, but that was not in the Constitution. The original uh, way we elected senators was the state legislatures appointed them. And in the progressive era, it was uh, widely understood that this was an incredibly corrupt process that involved a, a lot of uh, a lot of basically bribery uh, and uh, there was a strong push to have senators directly elected uh, to take it away from the state legislatures and you know, eventually it became a very popular cause uh, and states felt pressure uh, to get behind this reform because the reform was very popular. Uh, and you know, also, I think this is an important thing to understand uh, for our current moment, is that a lot of senators and state legis legislators didn't actually like that system. The senators didn't like it because they didn't like being dependent on the state legislatures uh, for their... Uh, position they they wanted to run on their own, or at least a lot of them did, who thought that they would that they didn't like being tied to the state legislature, uh, and a lot of the state legislatures and state leg state legislators didn't like having uh, voters look past their individual characteristics and just at their party because. The voters wanted to control the Senate election. So this, you know, arguably, and the the Seventeenth Amendment, which you know ultimately passed into law in nineteen thirteen, actually preserved federalism by allowing state legislators to run on local issues without being tied to the balance of politics in in Washington. Although, yeah. interestingly, uh, Ben Sass, the U.S. senator who recently wrote a, a Wall Street Journal uh, op-ed uh, calling for, among other things, repealing the 17th Amendment on the, the thought that it would increase federalism. Uh, you know, so he, he's just flat out wrong on that. Yeah. Quit being part of the problem, Ben. That mm. So the, 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 the magic formula here in terms of implementing any grand structural change involves a lot of public pressure, but it really also involves the the folks in office, either number one, sharing that public sentiment or number two, at least knowing kind of what's in it for them. And what, what does it look yeah, like on I, the I, other I, side of this reform? Right. And, and, you know, I, I think we're at a moment in which there's tremendous public dissatisfaction with the way things are working. So the, the dissatisfaction is there. I think the the next step, and we're not at that step, is crystallizing around a, a, an alternative vision for what we think uh, our democracy could look like. I, I mean, we're, we're stuck in the doom loop, which is that Democrats are only capable of thinking that democracy would work if Democrats were in total power, and Republicans are only capable of thinking democracy would work if Republicans were in total power. Now, I think we need to understand that we're in this escalating spiral that nobody is going to get anything uh, that they want if we just keep fighting the zero-sum trench warfare. And you know, I think there are a growing number of politicians in both parties who understand this. Uh, they're not quite ready to go out there and, and take leadership, but they understand that the system is fundamentally broken. And you know, they understand that there are some real problems with their own party. 
And, you know, I think if they can help to catalyze some reform energy and, and help to legitimize some of these ideas beyond, uh, you know, just just a, a, a few 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 weirdos like us, uh, you know, uh, that can have tremendous impact. That book, again, is Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. You can find it on Amazon and whatever other booksellers have managed to escape Jeff Bezos' iron grip on the market. You can also catch his podcast, again, Politics in Question, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or directly on their website, politicsinquestion.com. What I loved most about that conversation is this. Politicians hate the process. Voters hate the process. It's just a matter of getting those two groups organized and aligned, and we can bring about the fundamental reform everybody's looking for. Now, next week's guests are people who have made proportional representation happen at the local level. I'll be talking with Steve Chesson and Kevin Sabo of Californians for Electoral Reform to discuss some of their victories in getting ranked choice voting and proportional representation implemented at the municipal level, some of the challenges they face in the process, and help draw out a blueprint for anybody interested in putting that kind of change into effect in their state. They give some great advice, so anyone serious about making this happen will not want to miss it. As always, music for YDHTY is courtesy of Kfellertak. Editorial advice for YDHTY is courtesy of Adam. Call me Ishmael Yaffe. Eventually, I'm going to think of a nickname that sticks. Just bear with me, folks. And production for YDHTY happens in the state of North Carolina by none other than the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.